Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the How Much is a Copy of Orgasm edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, and we're trying something a little different this week. I'm here, as always, with my friend Benjamin Wittes. Uh, yeah, but only with... Only Benjamin Wittes. And we're drinking scotch. And we are drinking scotch. Uh, Tamara is off in some godforsaken country. Where is she this week? Ah, uh, Canada. Canada, yeah, okay. Uh, but, then, so, but thence to Doha and, and to Israel. Yes, then she's going to, you know, to other godforsaken, godforsaken places. So for the, for this week, it's going to be just Ben and I. No Jonathan Roush. No Jonathan Roush. No Jen Daskal. Mm-mm. No Merritt Bear. No. No guests. They all turned us just down. Just scotch. They all said that it's the last time we will ever come on this program. Jonathan Roush, we actually have to trick into coming on this program. Yeah. Is pretty sad. So we, we we brought scotch instead. Exactly. So we're going to hang out and we're going to have uh, scotch with all of you. I hope you're drinking scotch. You should pour yourself something that you really, really enjoy and, and settle in. Yeah. Because this is going to be good. This is going to be really good. It's going to be the best show we've ever done, I think. Or certainly the shortest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This week on the show, is everything we think we know about privacy wrong? And we're going to discuss a novel proposal for easing the tensions between the press and the government when journalists disclose sensitive national security information. Plus, in our object lesson, very tiny robots. They're here, buzzing in your ear. Preview to things to come. Ben, why don't you start us off with your wordplay? So my wordplay in the shameless self-promotion department is a paper that I've been working on for uh, a good long time and just released this past week. Uh, I wrote it with a uh, just-graduated Harvard Law student named Jody Liu. And the question we uh, tried to sort of tickle a little bit in this question is whether we keep score as a society in privacy discussions completely wrong. Uh, And the basic argument of the paper is that most new technologies that come along that have privacy implications actually have positive privacy implications as well as negative privacy implications. And as a society, we tend to pocket the positive uh, aspects and then worry about the negative aspects. And so we have this tendency to always think that our privacy is seriously eroding, is going away, when in fact, in some ways, we have much more privacy than we used to because of those same technologies. So the subtitle of the paper is The Privacy Benefits of Privacy Threats. And it opens with this scene that I think, you know, uh, a lot of, a whole generation of American boys is growing up without having had this experience. And it's this scene from the movie Bananas where Woody Allen is trying to buy porn at a newsstand and he's completely humiliated by uh, the fact that the 
uh, an old lady is watching him as he uh, looks through the porn. And then when he tries to pay for it, um, having slipped it between Time and Newsweek and the Saturday Review and the um, uh, and commentary, he goes up to the counter and he gives it to the cashier. And the guy says, Hey, Ralph, how much is a copy of Orgasm? Uh, just put him in a bag, will you? What? Orgasm. This man wants to buy a copy. How much is it? Doing a sociological study on perversion. I'm up to advanced child molesting. <laughs> how much for the orgasm? How much for a copy of Orgasm? <laughs> That's great. And so our, our thesis is that they, these are sort of types of social humiliations that the technologies we associate with privacy invasion actually insulate us from. And so in the paper, we go through a whole bunch of different uh, examples of areas where technologies we think of as privacy invasive actually have privacy protective effects. And so one of them, for example, is um, Google search, where people really you know, assume that the fact that our search histories are collected in some sense is very privacy invasive. But we look at it from the point of view of people who have medical conditions that they're getting um, you know, information privately about that we used to have to interact with other people to get. Right. You know, people, the pregnant teenager, the kid who thinks he may be gay, the, um, you know, the person who has doubts about their church or has doubts about their parents' atheism, right? You know, the ability privately to get information, at least privately from the people around us, is actually unprecedentedly great. And then, the, we, there are a whole bunch of really fun little nuggets that we dug up, like the fact that, you know, if you think about what's the most privacy invasive way to read, you would think it would be the Kindle, right? Where Amazon knows not only what book you're reading and what books you've read, but what page you're on of, of these books. And yet, uh, if you look at Fifty Shades of Grey, it has outsold the hardcover copy and the, 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 the physical copy, the Kindle copies have done wildly better. And the reason, of course, is that people actually care much more about what they're seeing reading on the subway right. than they care about what some remote em entity like Amazon knows about them. And so the basic argument is not that the conventional thesis about privacy erosion is wrong. It's that it's incomplete because it, it calculates one side of a very complicated ledger without looking at the other side. And the paper has, as I say, a lot of really fun nuggets. One of the things that uh, we did, my co-author did most of this, actually, was going through... Buy porn? Uh, no. she, yeah, she bought a lot of porn. Uh, we actually had to talk to the Brookings, this is true, actually, we had to talk to the Brookings IT people to tell them that you know, Jody was going to be going through... This is just research. <laughs> this is legit research, and she was going to be uh, visiting... Because uh, some of the porn companies keep really good data, actually, on, sure. on, on and some of them publish it um, on how their oh. users aggregate stuff. Okay, okay. Um, so the company Pornhub has this incredible site called Pornhub Insights, where they publish aggregate patterns of porn consumption from, you know, different parts of the world. And it's fascinating stuff, but the domain is Pornhub, you know. And yeah, so yeah. Um, 
No, I, the most interesting thing I thought that Jody looked at in the course of our work on this paper was actually Google autocomplete data. Mm. So if you look at, you know, when you start typing something in, into Google, it will finish the expression for you based on what other people have searched. And so by looking at autocompletes, you can figure out what sort of things people are searching. And it turns out that people confess all kinds of things to Google, um, which we use as a kind of collective diary. So if you type, I'm afraid that, um, you get a real window into um, people's anxieties. If you, what, I'm, so afraid, what you I'm afraid that I'm gay, that's what I got. <laughs> I'm afraid that's me, darling. I'm logged in as me, so this yeah, is also... So, that's a line from uh, Grand Hotel, Grand Budapest Hotel. But yes, but I'm afraid that I w that I'm afraid that won't be possible. I'm afraid that I have cancer. These are right. things that come up. So so people are you know when they experience something, they are um, immediately confiding it to Google by way of getting information. Right now, you can say, well, that's privacy dangerous, which of course it is because ultimately that could be subject to a subpoena or to. But you can also say that's millions and millions of people getting information privately from the people whose private, uh, from whom they most want privacy, which is the people immediately around them. You know, they want to find out if they have cancer without scaring their spouses, right? right? They want to, um, you know, the, I'm a, I, I think it, I may be gay. It shows up no matter who you are yeah. because so many people have, you know, questions at some point in their yeah. lives about sexuality. Um, so we actually had, we actually did this from multiple computers logging out of Google before we checked. Oh, so them. you could have like a sort of more anonymous, non-customized version. Non-customized version. And it is amazing. So, you know, a lot of women fear their husbands may be gay at mm -hmm. some point and Google reflects that. You know, there, there's a, there's a whole series of these things. Um, if you type symptoms of, you get, you know, everything that people may be anxious that they yeah. might have. And I think you have a window into a kind of privacy that just simply doesn't show up in the privacy scorecard as we keep it in the United States and Europe. Yeah. So that's my... Um, and I have to say, this like, I mean, this this resonates with me on a very personal level, which I don't mind discussing. And that's, I mean, and it goes back to you know, people searching online for questions about their sexuality. So when I was in college, 19, 20 years old, the Internet was very much sort of nascent. It was kind of in its infancy. But one of the things that, that was very easy to do was go online and go into chat rooms. And AOL at the time, which is what everyone used to go into chat rooms, had chat rooms that subdivided into different categories, including gay men who were in there talking with each other and, frankly, many of them looking to meet up with each other. But for somebody who at that age was sort of searching for answers about my sexuality and terrified about talking to anyone about it, least of all, most of all, like my friends or my family, this was truly like a lifeline. And I don't, I don't use that word casually. I really think that if I had not had the opportunity to connect with other people in an anonymous environment where I controlled when I went into it, when I went out, how much I disclosed, what questions I could ask, I really think that I would have been at a loss, given how insecure I was at the time, for any outlet for that kind of discovery, and that that would have been profoundly psychologically damaging to me. And so here's an interesting question. So 
if you talk to a conventional privacy activist about that, mm -hmm. they would not describe that as a privacy good. They would say, well, you found a community on the internet, right? And which is also true. Which is also true. And the goal of privacy policy should be to protect the confidentiality of that right. community. If you ask me, I would say that's a huge privacy benefit that the inter that these technologies provided you, that they allowed you on your own terms to explore uh, questions you were having without the people you didn't want to know know about it. Um, and I would also say it provided you a huge security benefit. That, that is, that the privacy interest and the security interest were fundamentally congruent mm -hmm. with one another. So I'm interested in your perception. How did you understand it at the time? Was it, was it looking for people like me? Was it a secure way to find out information? Was it privacy? Was there distinction between those? I think it was looking for people like me and satisfying a curiosity. And I mean, and a yearning too. I was also looking for people, frankly, to go meet in public and you know, and or, and be with other gay people in an environment that was, you know, sort of baby steps into the pool, if it if it will, if you will. Um, but also, it was fundamentally important at the time is that no one I knew was going to find out about it. Right? My roommates weren't going to know about it. My family wouldn't know about it. I mean, I can even remember at the time surfing online and talking in these chat rooms. And being very conscious of the fact that, like, if I was doing it in my dorm room, making sure that if I heard the dorm room open, that I needed to quickly get away from, you know, shut the AOL off. So even at the time, it was, you know, this is a tool that I'm using to very discreetly connect with people. And it's an interesting thing, too, like the word discreet. So it's actually, it was something that became something of a joke. I mean, I don't know if it is now because I'm married and I haven't been in chat rooms in over a decade, but... People often use that word discreet, which was code for I'm in the closet. It was I'm looking for other, I'm looking for men, looking to talk to men, whatever, discreet. Discreet meaning don't out me. And so essentially the you were setting ground rules immediately saying I anticipate and expect this to remain a private conversation. And even if I am to meet up with you, I expect you not to talk about it with anyone else and disclose that an actual meeting occurred. And so that I think the privacy characteristics of it were um, significant and you know and for me anyway implied and it was certainly a benefit I mean this was in I mean I also wasn't thinking you know of the potential that I would be in this chat room and be talking to somebody that I knew and that I didn't know this was let's say a friend or somebody in the next dorm or whatever um, but I suppose had we realized that we were you know both in the same boat that would have been beneficial as well but it was absolutely the privacy benefits I mean so it's interesting I you know in response to this paper our friend Paul Rosenzweig uh, sent me a example of how two-edged this sword is, right? So WikiLeaks published, and then as part of their publishing of all the Sony hack emails, and then somebody found and did an article post on, on Jezbel, the Amazon purchasing habits of a trans woman mm. um, and they posted this long list of all the beauty products she used and their comments on them and it is you know vilely yeah. privacy invasive yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you know my point and, and Jody's point is not that the conventional narrative is completely wrong and that everything 
you know, that you think is bad for your privacy is actually good for your privacy, but that these are very complicated ledgers, right? And it's possible that this person gained a lot of privacy by doing her shopping for these products in, in a forum in which nobody else knew. But then if somebody happens to hack that forum, like say the North Koreans, leak it to, you know, give it, make, make it all public and WikiLeaks decides to publish it all. And then somebody decides to, you know, really maliciously go after you. You're exposed in a way that you wouldn't be if you'd bought those same products at your local CVS. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, the point is simply that the calculation is extremely complicated and that consumers do not always uh, have the same privacy values as the privacy activists who purport to represent them. And sometimes it's much more important to, you know, the, the gay uh, college student to, ha- to be able dis- discreetly to reach a group of, uh, you know, similarly situated people than it is to do so you know, then it is the question of whether someday under some circumstances, you know, that could be subject to a subpoena or he might be marketed products based right. on, uh, based on that, that, uh, consumption pattern. So I, I, I mean, I'm not sure what the lesson of it is, except that I think we need a better vocabulary for privacy benefits and privacy harms. And it's a, vocabulary that doesn't minimize the benefits by way of uh, by way of emphasizing the harms. I agree with that. And, and just to kind of <clears throat> close it out, I mean, I think that what's interesting to me and another reason why I sort of I like exploring this territory is that it seems to me that in this day and age, all of us who are using these technologies that may have some sort of privacy benefit, I think we all fundamentally understand the risk, right? I mean, we all know that the things that you are posting on Facebook are being used by Facebook for marketing purposes. I mean, if you don't know that by now, you haven't been paying attention. But we're sort of willingly doing this, I think, in part because, A, we think it's probably never going to be misused, and we're one of a billion people, so what could they possibly find about us? But I think on some level, we're making some sort of a trade-off there, and that this whole notion of a new vocabulary for privacy, and you and I have talked about this before, needs to sort of factor that in, right? That people have sort of expectations of privacy that, you know, that modulate. It's like a dial that we turn. And, you know, and one of the things that's from the Snowden debates it's been so interesting is that, you know, we expect a higher level of privacy from government than we do from corporations. You know, and we're making those calculations right now. Right, and... Or we demand, I should say. We expect that the government will violate our privacy, but we don't want them to, and we sort of forgive companies in a way for doing it because we think we're getting something back. Well, right. And and the other thing is that our privacy calculations are not entirely rational because they go to how we feel. And how we feel is not entirely rational. So here's an interesting thought experiment. And by the way, CVS would not release data to Jody and me to either confirm or refute this this hypothesis. But so consider this a thought experiment. CVS a few years ago installed uh, self-checkout machines in a great many of their stores. They use them all the time. Um, 
Do you think condom sales in those stores went up or down? And do you think condom sales in the in the self-checkout machines are disproportionately higher or lower or proportionally about the same as checkouts in which the 17-year-old boy has to look the uh, cashier in the eye and say, uh, having sex today, how much will these cost me? Yeah. Um, my hypothesis is that self-checkout has a very significant impact on sales of sex of sensitive items and that that's why CVS is not releasing data. That you're more likely to buy them. Correct. Yeah. That the people are just way more comfortable um, you know, buying the vaginal sponge right. and not um uh you know and not walking up to somebody and saying, you know, how much and because that person will then shout across the room you know, how much is a copy of Orgasm, right. Ralph, right? right? And and I think that is not an entirely rational set of feelings, but it is the way large numbers of people feel. And since privacy is essentially about the way we feel, we minimize that something at, to some degree at our peril in understanding what people actually value in in protecting their privacy and people want to be insulated from those situations and that's why by the way there are these companies that do nothing but online condom sales mm. and when they sell condoms online we list some of these companies in the paper they um, show up on your credit card as a generic name not sure. as the rubber club or right. um, <laughs> and you know um, and that's not, is that an entirely rational thing? No, but the value it's protecting is privacy. Uh, it reminds me just as a coda that the, uh, the writers of Golden Girls, one of my favorite shows, uh, clearly ripped off bananas because there was a scene where the ladies go to buy condoms in a drugstore. And, you know, one of them, of course, that can't scan at the checkout line and the guy has to do the price check over the microphone. How much for the condoms? Yeah. This is for a lady. And says, this one wants the extra large and this one wants them in black. It's great. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, okay, so my wordplay, uh, actually, boy, Ben, this is a twofer for you this week. <laughs> my wordplay is also something that Ben wrote, um, which I am really excited by and uh, got, a, I think, a, a, an interesting discussion going on social media this week, including a, uh, a little retweet by the uh, public editor for the New York Times. Uh, so Ben has this article, uh, this post on Lawfare, which he calls An Approach to Ameliorating Press intelligence community tensions over classified information. And essentially the, the idea here is that, and you correct me if I'm wrong in this, but journalistic organizations, newspapers, TV, radio, whomever, would nominate an individual whom would be grant, who would be granted security clearance by the government. And in instances when the news organization was on to a story and was going to disclose something that was classified or sensitive, and the government says to them, we would really prefer that you not do that, rather than trying to make the case to reporters and editors who don't have clearances, uh, the government would actually be able to go to this intermediary, show this person more than they would show to the reporters or the editors, including classified information, give them more of the, here's our case, sort of, open the robe a little bit as to why we think this is a bad idea. 
That intermediary would then make a recommendation to the news organization where he would say, I am persuaded that the government has a strong case and we shouldn't publish, or I am not persuaded that they have a good case and I think there's no harm if you do publish. The news organization would not be bound by that intermediary's recommendation, but if they chose to go ahead and publish the story anyway against that person's recommendation, they would be required to disclose that they were going against that recommendation, that they were ignoring it. Um, so I think I have that, the facts of that basically right. And, you know, this, this is really, it's very interesting and it's very provocative because, and I think as you point out in the post, and I agree, if the government is coming to you as a journalist and saying, you know, look, we think you shouldn't publish the story, and you say, well, why not? And well, there are operational security concerns. Okay, what are they? Well, we can't talk about those. Or they're sort of compelled to speak in generalities and potentially even to exaggerate, or at least we have the perception that they might be exaggerating because they're just trying to, to throw us off the story. And this would actually be a model whereby somebody that the organiz- journalist organization trusts would give a fair hearing with more of the facts. Right. So, first of all, on the point about exaggeration, I think there is a pervasive miscommunication between the press and the government about exaggeration. And it works like this. The government is petrified of bad outcomes. And you don't have to have a very high chance of a bad, of a really bad outcome, like an agent getting killed to use the, or the family being threatened, right? Um, before the government will consider the public interest in the story as not warranting that outcome. The, the risk of that outcome. The press looks at that outcome as, say, pretty unlikely. And theref- and then, of course, the outcome doesn't happen. right? So the press says, well, the government was exaggerating. And the government responds, well, wait a minute, we never said it was going to happen. Right. We said there was an unreasonable risk of it happening. And this is a circle you can't square. Mm. Because... You don't know when something didn't happen what the chances of its actually having happened were. And so my feeling is you want to improve the level of communication between the two institutions such that the government can really make its case and saying, look, you know, here's the risk. We think there's a 60% chance that this risk will come to fruition, or we think there's a 5% chance that this risk will come to fruition, or we think there's a 90% chance that, the you know, here's the specific set of things we're concerned about, and here's why. And then this cleared intermediary, which it's important in in the proposal as I advanced it, is somebody who is nominated by the press Mm -hmm. and and cleared by the government. Mm -hmm. Um, and that person would then go back to the New York Times. I'm thinking about the New York Times' interaction that we've discussed before with, with, between Dean Baquet and Mark Mazzetti on the one hand and the CIA on the other hand over the naming of these three, uh, counterterrorism officials. And would say, look, okay, I've reviewed the government's case and I do think there's merit to it, and I think there's a reasonable chance that something really bad would happen. Or I've reviewed the government's case, and I don't think there's a you know a significant chance. I think there's um, 
maybe some chance, but it's pretty diffuse. And by the way, the information's already available. And so somebody who really wanted to do these things wouldn't benefit that much from the information you're proposing to disclose. Somebody who's in a neutral position who can hear all the information that's going into that government decision, but then can also come back and either back up the press's instinct that the government is overreacting here or that the chances of a bad outcome are very small or can say, hey, wait a minute, there really is something here that you should be respectful of. And my feeling is it doesn't inhibit the press's maneuverability at all. It simply obliges them to give more information to their readership, i.e., this person thought we shouldn't do it. Right. Um, and I can see why reporters, I mean, look, what journalists wouldn't like is as they would say, it, it, it's essentially taking us out of the loop, right? It's our job to listen firsthand to our sources. Actually, one of the tweets that I liked from, was from a journalist, Adam Ronsley, who said, uh, media already selects people with clearances who can convey sensitivity of the information. They're called sources. So journalists will look at this and potentially say, you're asking us to sort of nominate one person who's going to have more information than we are, who can't actually tell us what they know. Now they are sort of behind the veil because, of course, they'll be punished if they reveal the secrets that they've been told. But I have to say, I, I, I do like it insofar as it's not binding on the journalists and it would give a media organization one more kind of source. I mean, yes, it's not a perfect source, but it's somebody who you implicitly trust because you nominated them after all. Uh, and who's presumably whose judgment you would take seriously. And it's just another factor in the decision making. And I think it gives the government the sense too that they were able to make more of the case than they would otherwise be able to make. It sort of seems to me that every side gets something out of this, even if the resolution is not necessarily what the government would want or what the media organization would want. Right. Now I can think of a number of reasons why the media might be uh, wary of this. So one of them is, if I were Dean Bacay, I might respond to me by saying, I'm li willing to listen to anything the government has to say about why I shouldn't publish a story. It's their decision whether, whether or not to trust me with information, but the more information they give me, the more richly informed my decision is. Uh, another point is the point that you make that, you know, hey, well, maybe the government, um, this is a way of co-opting a member, somebody who should be representing the press, but in fact ends up representing the government's interests to the press. Um, I could see a lot of reasons why it wouldn't work, but which is why I think it needs to be a, a non-binding thing, as well as for First Amendment reasons. I don't, I don't think you can have a series of rules that tell the press structurally what they are and aren't allowed to publish. On the other hand, I do think the current system is really impaired by bad information flow and that there are situations in which improved information flow might make a difference or at least might allow the side with the better argument to have the weight of somebody's a respected opinion behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in the event that if you imagine that interaction between 
Mazzetti and Dean Bacay and the CIA. When Jack Goldsmith came in and interviewed all the people involved and then wrote a long blog post on Lawfare that said, I don't find the government's arguments persuasive here. I think that really had an impact on the New York Times's um, decision. I mean, not a dis- an impact on their decision to publish, but I think it really had an effect on a lot of people who were initially critical of that decision mm-hmm. that said, well, wait a minute, somebody here has really reviewed the whole decision-making and thinks that this was a reasonable decision. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a process lesson in that. Maybe, maybe yeah. the right answer is, you know, the government can talk to, to somebody like Jack in a way that they cannot talk to the New York Times. Not that they did in this case. Right. But that somebody like Dean McKay should have somebody like Jack to receive a set of information that he's not able to receive and say, uh, Hey, they're really, you're really in, you've got a clear conscience here, or hey, you've got a real problem here. Right. And I think you put your finger on something there too, which is that who this person is would sort of be the, the, the major question. Like this would have to be somebody who had credibility both among journalists and among government officials. And I mean, and Jack is an interesting example that Jack is somebody who, in my opinion, would very naturally be somebody who you would imagine fulfilling this kind of a role because he has a reputation for, frankly, you know, speaking truth to to all parties and frequently telling people things they don't want to hear, even when you would think somebody like him might be in a position to go the other way. So imagine that story had come out and it had the passage in it. Um, the government objected to our publication of the, uh, the New York Times' publication of these names uh, a full presentation was made to our nominated, you know, representative, uh, Jack Goldsmith, who concluded that, uh, the New York Times should publish, yeah. uh, the information. Imagine that on the one hand versus on the other hand, the information, the, the same exact story that said, um, the government objected to our publication of, of this information. We uh, nominated Jack Goldsmith to hear the government's presentation. He agreed with the government that this publication would be extremely damaging, and we decided to do it anyway. Right. Um, I, and I think those two stories would be read extremely differently. I agree. And probably should be read very differently. So that, that was kind of spiritually what was behind the proposal. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that it has not, like, my phone has not been ringing from either press people or government people with, you know, accolades for this idea. You think that they don't support it? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I just haven't, I haven't gotten a lot of reaction to it, and I've been intrigued that, I mean, I wonder if, from the government's point of view, it would operate that, you know, you end up getting choosing a lot of people who are going to give the press cover for blowing secrets. And from the press's point of view, as your social media response suggested, there's just fear of anything that would involve um, bringing people into the cleared sphere in which they have obligations to the government. Because you can imagine if your representative came back and said, I don't think you should publish it, you immediately know as an editor that, boy, if we really feel like we should publish this, 
we're essentially, you know, we're taking an even bigger risk potentially because now we have to disclose that this independent person told us this is a really bad idea. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I think so. I I think look, it, it's got risks from both the government and the press point of view. And for which reason, I think neither party is likely to be terribly enthusiastic about it. But the the thought exercise was, you know, could could I come up with a system that would ameliorate, by no means eliminate, but ameliorate tensions of the sort that we saw between the New York Times and, and the CIA and that we've seen again and again and again in the Obama and Bush years. And I, I thought this was sort of worth floating in yeah. that spirit. And, you know, and just as a related quick point, too, it's not as if journalists are never given security clearances. I can think off the top of my head of three people who I know who were journalists who went into government who obtained security clearances and who came back out and became journalists again, including one person who writes about the topics that he dealt with when he was working in the Defense Department. So it's not as though there is something about, you know, the government having this outright hostility towards sharing anything of a sensitive nature with journalists. I think, and again, these are, these are different. It's not exactly apples and oranges, right? But it's sort of like, you know, it, it's, it's apples and pears. It's somewhat related. If you have a cleared individual, then the government can legally disclose that information. That's the key. Right. And look, I mean, you know, we've litigated dozens of Guantanamo cases in the district court and the D.C. Circuit and on cert petition in which the detainee is a terrorist and the lawyer is cleared to receive all kinds of classified information. And this happens in the criminal context under SEPA all the time. All the time. And... So the idea that you couldn't have a mechanism in which a representative of the media were cleared but didn't share, you know, sensitive information with the client um, who already has some of that sensitive information and is thinking of, of publishing it, doesn't share that information but, but merely advises the client on how severe the issue may or may not be, doesn't strike me as a radical step from a transparency point of view. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, let's go on to uh, object lessons. Um, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, my object lesson is it's the heart and soul of the Patriot Act, which I think is going bye-bye as of Monday at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, which some people will say good riddance, some people will say, eh, we wish it weren't so, but I'm not hearing anyone say the world is going to end, including the Attorney General, the FBI Director, and the President. No one is saying that the sky is falling. Funk! Uh, yeah, <laughs> because it won't, guess what? Um, no, I just, we are, we're heading in, this, this podcast will be up before we head into a Senate session on Sunday night, which will probably stretch into the wee hours, so I'll be awake while you're asleep, um, in which the Senate is either going to vote to pass the USA Freedom Act that already passed the House, which would amend the Patriot Act uh, uh, to end the bulk records phone program, but keep lone wolf and roving wiretaps, or they're not going to do that, and then those provisions will expire, uh, and I think will not easily be resuscitated and put back on the books. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, our object, my object this week is uh, these hugely controversial provisions of a now almost 15-year-old law. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and predict uh, will no longer be law as of Monday, and will still not be law by the time we do this podcast later that week, and I don't think are coming back. Well, just to be contrary, I am going to predict that enough Republican senators will fold um, that 
the USA Freedom Act will pass the Senate, and when we convene next time, uh, there will be reauthorization uh, of with the amendments of the USA Freedom Act in a giant victory for the joint forces of uh, the civil liberties community and the National Security Agency. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Everybody except wins. Mitch McConnell. Except Mitch McConnell. And you know if they if they pass it, it's going to be like 92 to, zero, 92 to 8. But uh, Okay, what is your uh, object lesson, Ben? So my object lesson, um, I, and I'm going to do this without the shameless plug for my book, The Future of Violence. <laughs> um, now my object lesson is uh, the, the smallest flying robot in the world that U.S. forces have actually used. Uh, the, so uh, tiny. It's so tiny. It uh, fits in the palm of your hand. It is uh, Defense One is reporting that uh, there is uh, that a company in Norway called Prox Dynamic, Prox Dynamics has, uh, for the last three years, been putting in the hands of special forces uh, the PD one hundred Black Hornet, which. Um, can, has a range of about a kilometer and can stay aloft for 25 minutes. It's a bug-sized, uh, a little bigger than a bug, maybe a sort of hummingbird-sized drone. If I saw a bug that big, I would be a little terrified. Yeah. But yeah it's um, not huge, though. It's big for a bug. It's big for a bug, small for a bird. Or um, a drone. Or a drone. And it is... Um, uh, available currently in the field uh, to U.S. Special Forces for surveillance purposes. We'll have a video of it as well as a link to the story up uh, on uh, the show page. And I just want to point out that it's only a matter of time before we arm these things and make them even smaller. And so that, that fly that lands on your forehead uh, could be the last... When you swat it and it explodes and your head explodes with it, It'll be the last bug you ever swat. That's and right. So the drones are the drones are getting smaller. They're they're espionage oriented today, but tomorrow they're going to be lethal, and they're going to be in your bathtub. I think that if they were selling these in stores, people would not be ashamed to go buy them at the checkout counter. People, I think that's people would be lining up around the corner. It'd be like buying. The I think app, that's like right because it'd be like buying the Apple Watch. Totally. I mean, but can is... you control the Black Hornet PD one thousand one hundred PRS with your Apple Watch? What if it starts thinking for itself? There's an app for that. There's an app for that. I need an app to think for me. <laughs> uh, I think the show has come to a conclusion. Um, I think we did pretty well flying on our own here. Yeah, well, we, we you know it's 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 less fun without Tammy, but it's true. But fun with Scotch. It is fun with Scotch. Maybe next time she's back, we should enlighten her as to the secret that we found to good podcasting. There's a little bit of that social lubrication. Indeed, indeed. Uh, that's it for our show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other great podcasts on our website. SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at RATL Security on Twitter. When you download the podcast from wherever you download podcasts, please do leave a rating and comments. It's the best way to help other people learn about our show. The podcast is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music is performed by the editors of Orgasm Magazine. Actually, no. We, we <laughs> by were, Ralph. By Ralph. <laughs> Ralph. Ralph performed the music. <laughs> no, I wish Ralph performed the music. Not that we don't love our music that is actually performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. 
We could probably got to be careful when she buys things on the internet in China. Yeah, I think that's right. Even though she's in Hong Kong.、Uh, on behalf of Benjamin Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.